0: Since I retired, I've been telling people that I've shifted from the serenity prayer to the senility prayer. You know the senility prayer? God grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyway. The good fortune to run into the ones I do like and the eyesight to tell the difference. Well, it's a joy to be here today and to be a part of this focus on prayer this morning and uh, this evening, and then uh, tomorrow in chapel, Terry Tickle. Where are you, Terry? He's all the way in the back. Terry knows a lot about prayer and has given himself to a life of prayer uh, and to to prayer in the church, so make sure you come and hear him tonight and tomorrow. 800 years ago, standing in front of a large crucifix in a crumbling old abandoned church building in central Italy, a young Francis of Assisi heard the risen Lord speak uh, speak to him and say, Francis, rebuild my church, which is in ruins. I believe that all across North America today, Christian leaders are hearing the risen Lord Jesus speaks similar words to them. Many of you are in seminary right now because in one way or another, he has spoken those words to you. Rebuild my church, which is in ruins. And you're partly here to get prepared to do that. But what part does prayer play in all this anyway? John Wesley said that God does nothing except in answer to believing prayer. But when it comes to rebuilding the church, which is in ruins, which needs revival and awakening so desperately, what does it mean? What does it look like? Well, this morning, we wanna let Nehemiah, another famous rebuilder of the walls, tell us what it means. Years before, the walls of Jerusalem had been torn down and destroyed when the Jewish people lost their land and had been carried away into exile. And so over 70 years after that, God sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild them. And in fact, that's what we remember this guy Nehemiah for. He's a rebuilder of the walls. But this morning, we're going to see that the rebuilding all starts with Nehemiah assuming a posture of fervent, believing prayer, travailing prayer, focused prayer, patient prayer. Nehemiah is actually not living in Jerusalem when this story opens. He's in Susa, the capital city of Persia, about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Nehemiah was serving in the court of the king of Persia. In fact, he was the king's cupbearer, which was a very important position, which put him very close to the king. One of Nehemiah's brothers, along with several other men who had recently visited Jerusalem, had come back to Persia, and they told Nehemiah about what they found there. And what they told him wasn't good, not good at all. The Jewish people who had been allowed after their years of exile to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city are in great trouble and shame because there's no wall around the city and they have no protection from their enemies. And so they're just struggling to stay alive and to survive. And so they give Nehemiah this bad report. Things could hardly be worse back in Jerusalem. And how does Nehemiah respond? Listen to what he says. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, Nehemiah could have said, oh, man, I am so sorry to hear that. That's, That's too bad. But. But what can I do? I mean, you know, uh, God has put me into this important position of influence as the king's cupbearer. What can I do about it? But no, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is deeply, profoundly moved. He tells us that he sat down. Everything, everything in his life, just stopped right there and came to a halt. He wept. He cared so much about that situation in Jerusalem that he began to shed tears about it. And that wasn't just his initial reaction. You know, this wasn't just a momentary passing thing. No, he, he, it says he mourned for days and fasted and prayed. He couldn't get Jerusalem off his mind. He quit eating because of it. Nehemiah's whole being is consumed by the gravity of the situation. And I want you to, to grasp the, the depth and the intensity of Nehemiah's response because repairing the ruins, rebuilding the walls, this, this, this is where it all starts, folks. It's not enough to get slightly concerned about something that's in ruins. No, we've got to really get upset about it, passionate about it, so passionate that it deeply begins to affect us. And we usually think of this man, Nehemiah, as the man who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But oh, never forget that before Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, he wept over the ruins. And this is always the first step, isn't it? In repairing and rebuilding. You see, in God's kingdom economy, Nothing ever changes until somebody hurts, until somebody agonizes, until somebody travails. Before we can rebuild the walls, we first have to weep over the ruins. Well, Nehemiah has this passion and this burden for this situation back in Jerusalem, and he wants to do something about it. He wants to to rebuild the walls, but it's significant that he doesn't immediately rush in and beg the king to let him go to Jerusalem. I mean, as the, the cupbearer to the king with the kind of access that he had, that seemed like the obvious thing for Nehemiah to do. But notice... That's not what happens. Before Nehemiah goes to the king, Nehemiah goes to God. His burden to see the walls rebuilt and the ruins repaired moves him to pray, to wait on God. He prays and fasts for days. In, one, in fact, one of Nehemiah's prayers, it's a rather long prayer is recorded for us in the text. It tells us how he prayed and what he prayed for. And like so many of the prayers in the Bible, you know, we can learn a lot about prayer just by studying it and unpacking it. Notice how he begins. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of steadfast love, his prayer starts with adoration and praise. It's like the Lord's Prayer. It begins in heaven, not on earth. He focuses on who God is. He's great and awesome. He's the God of steadfast love who keeps his covenant. Say, have you discovered that adoring God, praising God for who he is, causes your God to get bigger? Not literally, of course. God is infinite and unchanging, but but I mean bigger in our eyes. You see, when we adore him and we praise him and we see him for who he always was and is and is to come, then God gets bigger in our eyes. And when God gets bigger in our eyes, what happens to our problems? They get smaller, don't they? So, Nehemiah's prayer begins with confession, adoration. He gets his focus on God, and then he moves to confession. I pray, he says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. Did you notice how Nehemiah includes himself here? I'm at fault here, Lord. So don't just forgive us, have mercy on us, but Lord, forgive me. It's interesting, Nehemiah's problem right now is the king. How do I persuade the king to let me go to Jerusalem so I can do something about rebuilding the walls? But before he prays and asks God to change the king's mind, he confesses, Lord, I'm at fault, those ruins, are a part of the result of the web of sin that I'm a part of. So, Lord, forgive me. Lord, change me. Years ago, I remember praying for one of my three sons. He was in his late teens at the time, and he had sem- said something in a conversation with me that kind of reflected a defiant, rebellious attitude and an unwillingness to submit to someone who was in authority over him. I'll do what he says, Dad, but I'll never give him my heart. And it grieved me. And so I found myself praying for him for the next few days and asking the Lord to change that attitude in him And one day while I was praying about that I sensed I heard the Lord say Steve where do you think he learned that attitude from (laughs) so often in your own passive aggressive way you do the very same thing yeah Steve I want to change him but before I change him I first want to change you Let me warn you, be careful. Prayer is dangerous. It'll change you. Nehemiah confesses on behalf of the people and his family. Nehemiah confesses his own sin. Lord, forgive me. I'm a part of this problem too. And, and then Nehemiah starts reminding God of his promises. Remember the word that you commanded Moses, he says. And then he starts quoting scriptures, actually, they're from Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, to God. And, and he, these are scriptures where God has made a promise to the people. Lord Nehemiah says, You said that if we were disobedient and turned away from you, we would be exiled and taken away to foreign lands. And of course, that's happened to us, been there and done that. But God, you also said that if we turned back to you and we were obedient, then you would bring us from the far corners back to the land, and we would return to the land. So Nehemiah says to God, I'm standing on your promise You've got to do this to be true to your promise. You said if we turned, you'd bring us back to the land. Lord, I'm naming it and claiming it. Lord, I'm holding you to your word. I heard a preacher in this pulpit say about 10 years ago, if you want to see God move, tell God what God said. That's what Nehemiah did. He reminded God of his promises. And by the way, that's why you need to immerse yourself in scripture to be like John Wesley, a man, a woman of one book. Because how in the world can you remind God of his promises if you don't know what his promises are? When you do that, though, your faith rises. Your, your prayer intensifies because, you see, now it's not about you. It doesn't depend on you. It's about God and God's promises. And as William Carey often said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. He will do what he says. And finally, Nehemiah's prayer turns to Petition. He makes his specific request known to God. Give your servant success today by granting favor in the presence of this man, the the king. And that's an important part of prayer, isn't it? God likes it when we specifically ask him. Sometimes we receive not because we ask not. God wants us to do that because he cares about the specifics, doesn't he? The details, the hairs on our head of our lives. Well, there's a whole lot we can learn about prayer from this pattern of prayer that we see in this prayer of Nehemiah's. But now there's one more thing that Nehemiah models for us that I just don't want you to miss. And it has to do with a whole area of how patience is so often bound up with and integrable to prayer. You see, from the information that we get in this story and the timeline in the story, we know that four months go by between the day Nehemiah first heard the bad report about the situation in Jerusalem and the day when he actually asked the king for permission to go to Jerusalem and do something about it. All along, during those four months, Nehemiah is deeply concerned. He's passionate about the situation. He's praying and he's fasting about it. But for four months, folks, he does nothing. He takes no action. He simply waits before God. Oh, often... This is where we make our first big mistake or our biggest mistake. There's something we're deeply concerned about, something the Lord himself has put on our hearts. And we may offer, you know, a quick prayer about it, but so often we fail to wait on God and to find out really what he wants us to do in the light of that and when he wants us to do that. So we just jump right in assuming we know and trying to fix the problem and solve the problem ourselves. I remember as a young pastor in my 20s wanting to remove the person in the church who was working with our senior high youth and to move him out of that leadership position because, you see, John wasn't a deeply committed Christian. He was so shallow in his faith. How in the world could he Take the youth deeper in theirs. It was obvious to me. He needed to go. And so for two years, I prayed, Lord, help me to get him out of that position so we can put someone there that knows you and walks with you and that can then lead the youth into a knowledge of you. But it wasn't that easy. I mean, he was popular with the youth. He was all they'd really ever known. And on top of that, he had all sorts of relatives in that church. (laughs) (laughs) Then one, one day I was sitting in my office, praying to the Lord, expressing some of my frustration about the situation. and I sensed I heard the Lord say, "Steve, you you keep wanting to remove him. What I want to do is try to change him. I want to take him deeper in his own faith." Hello. <laughs> well, you know That sort of changed everything because now instead of seeing John as a problem, I I was seeing him as a possibility and I I began to reach out to him as a result and try to get close to him in a way that I hadn't before. But you know, he pulled away because he sensed I'd hurt him by my attitude toward him. Well, eventually He did come to a deep faith in Christ and began to have a significant spiritual impact on the youth in that church. But sad to say, most of that happened after I had moved on and was pastoring another church. Thank God I got to talk to him years later and to hear the story. Tell him I was sorry for what I had done. We need to wait on God, don't we? To be patient in prayer. To be sure that what we do is really God's solution to the problem and not our solution to the problem. Not our way of repairing, but his way of repairing the broken down walls. And we also need to wait on God to make sure that when we do what God is leading us to do, we do it at the right time, in God's time, not ours. I, 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 love, I love this story. Finally, after four months, Nehemiah believes it's time to talk to the king. But, you know, he's afraid. He's hesitant. What if the king turns down my request? What if I lose my job for asking? No, what if I lose my head for asking? All those were possibilities. But amazingly, it's as if the king and Nehemiah switch places and the king starts treating Nehemiah like Nehemiah's the king and he's the servant. The king takes all the initiative. He senses that Nehemiah is upset about something. And when he asks Nehemiah about it and Nehemiah tells him about Jerusalem the king says what is it you want? Amazing. Nehemiah doesn't have to beg and plead. He doesn't even have to raise the issue. Why? Because God's prepared the king's heart. So when Nehemiah finally acted, it was in God's time. And folks, when God's will is done according to God's timetable, everything has a way of falling into place. The king says, what can I do? to help you. It's important not only to find what God's solution or God's will is, but, what, but when that will needs to be worked out. How often I've learned it the hard way. How often I've missed the Lord's timing. How often we try to pick the fruit off the tree while it's still green and not ripe yet. You know, when it's ripe, it falls off easily. We don't have to force it. And when we bite into it, it tastes so delicious. Because it's ripe. Oh, be patient. Wait on God. I've learned that he's never late, but he isn't in a hurry either. Rush is almost always wrong. For four months, Nehemiah had a strong sense of urgency, but he wasn't in a hurry. Well, someone has wisely said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do nothing but pray until you have prayed. Nehemiah did a whole lot more after he prayed, but he didn't do anything until he had prayed. Lord, as you prepare to use us in rebuilding the walls, repairing the ruins, teach us to pray. Increase our passion and our persistence and our patience in prayer. Meet us, Lord, in the breaking of the bread. You're the great high priest above that we've sung about who is interceding for us right now. Through your Holy Spirit, Lord, connect us to yourself and your work of intercession and prayer. On behalf of the world, on behalf of the bride, your church. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that we don't know how to pray as as we ought, but you intercede for us and in us and through us with sighs too deep for words. As we partake of these elements, connect us, Lord, with you. Teach us to pray.